the Jewish views on the Labour leadership contest, Corbyn or Smith, who is best for the community. Four Paws, the charity who recognised it's not only humans affected by the situation in the Middle East, and a magical start to London Underground's night tube service with magician and former JFS pupil, Michael G. First, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The two candidates standing for leader of the Labour Party have set out their stalls on issues which are of concern to the Jewish community. Jeremy Corbyn admitted he's been shocked by anti-Semitic language in the party, and his rival, Owen Smith, called for permanent expulsions for those members who express such abuse. The comments came in response to letters from the Board of Deputies, inquiring about both men's positions on a range of issues. Mr Corbyn also reiterated his backing for targeted boycotts aimed at undermining the existence of illegal settlements in the West Bank. And we'll be finding out more about this when we speak to Marie van der Zeel from the Board of Deputies later in the show. The government is stopping taxpayers' money going to the Christian charity World Vision. The International Development Secretary, Priti Patel, has written to Jewish community leaders saying she was deeply concerned about Israeli allegations that the charity's Gaza-based manager, Mohammed El Halabi, has funneled millions of pounds to Hamas. A new discovery by Israeli and German researchers may have found a way to stop the spread of melanoma, the deadliest kind of skin cancer. One of the study's leading scientists, Dr. Karmit Levy, said the threat of melanoma was not in the initial tumour, but in the metastasis which sends cancer cells to other organs such as the brain, lungs and liver. She said ways are being found to stop the cancer in its tracks before the metastatic stage. An international charity has removed 15 animals from a zoo in the Gaza Strip. Four Paws, an animal welfare group, took a tiger, five monkeys, a porcupine and an emu out of what it called the worst zoo in the world and crossed with them from Gaza into Israel. Most of the animals are destined for an animal sanctuary in Jordan, while the tiger will go to a refuge in South Africa. The removal of the animals has effectively closed the troubled zoo. And finally, a popular Tunisian singer who has a following throughout the Arab world has been heavily criticised for appearing in a photograph with an Israeli soldier. Sabah Ribai, who's a judge on the Arabic version of The Voice, met the soldier as he crossed from Jordan into the West Bank. The picture was posted on Palestinian social media. That's the news. Now the sport from Andrew Sherwood. Thanks, Viv. Hapa El Sheva were left counting the cost of a missed penalty as they fell a goal short of reaching the group stages of this season's Champions League. Needing to win the second leg by a three-goal winning margin, Ben Saha and Uvidu Hoban saw them claim a 2-0 win, but it was Maharan Radi's missed penalty which saw them miss out as they were beaten 5-4 on aggregate. The Secretary-General of the Olympic Committee of Israel has said the Rio Games were a success for the country. Gilly Lustig said... We wanted to return with a medal after the disappointment of not winning one in London. We won two in Rio, so I think these Olympics can be branded a success. And finally, Israeli Olympic bronze medalist Yarden Gerby has put her Olympic name patch up for auction on eBay. Looking to raise money for a children's cancer ward in Ikhilov Hospital, she has so far raised $15,000. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at www.jewishnews.co.uk. 
Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this week's edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me in the studio to go through the papers is Andrew Sherwood, who stays with us, community and sports editor, and editor Richard Ferrer. Welcome to you both. Let's start off in this very new environment for us, because you're in your new offices in Edgware, which is terribly exciting, after leaving Kentish Town for how many years? 10 years plus? We were in the area for 15 years. Oh, you were in Kentish Town for 15 years, I beg your pardon. Well, there you go. So in your new offices in Edgware, let's begin this pay-per-view with the front page as we always do. Into the Lion's Den is the headline, Owen Smith to face grilling. That's Jewish News Labour leadership debate. And there's a seat reserved for you too, Jeremy. Okay, so I suppose that this must mean there's some sort of hustings coming up. Yet some of our listeners may be aware that the Labour Party has spent pretty much the last year in self-destruct mode. Currently, we're in the middle of a uh, election battle between Owen Smith and Jeremy Corbyn, and we've managed to secure the hottest hustings ticket in town. Not an easy sentence to say. On well the, done, I was impressed. On the 18th of September at JW3, that's in association with the Jewish Labour Movement and Labour Friends of Israel, Jewish News is going to be hosting a hustings. Take your pick in terms of hot potatoes that you want to discuss with these two. I mean, there's Corbyn calling Hamas his friends. There's the whole anti-Semitism thing that was going on and still is to an extent in the party. Backing of boycotts, some of them still backing boycotts in certain areas of Israel and the territories. Owen Smith himself has uh, come out and said that in some regard we should be talking to ISIS. He wants to block Brexit. There's a catalogue of issues, both Jewish and non, that I think our readers and our listeners are going to be very, very keen to talk to these two about. Tickets are going to be available at the JW3 website from this Monday, the 29th. Okie doke. Well, I'm sure that they will sell out rather swiftly. However, of course, we have just been hearing in the news with Viv that the two potential leaders of the opposition faced a series of questions in official letters from the Board of Deputies. And I think that it seems to me, Andrew, that for so long that we have been talking about Labour and the relation with the Jewish community, could it be that once we've finally got over this hurdle of who eventually will be deemed as the leader, I know obviously Jeremy Corbyn is at the moment, but will he continue, won't he? We'll find out in just under a month's time, I guess. Do we think that this is going to hopefully start repairing the bridges between? First of all, I think it depends on questions put forward to him. There will obviously be animosity in the audience. It gives him the opportunity, obviously, to explain what he means, what his views are on certain elements. Whether that will wash with our readers, I wouldn't have thought so. Politicians, obviously, are notoriously good, not worming their way out of things, but dealing with people well, they you know, a gift of the gab. Whether they will actually sit with our listeners afterwards, after the session's taken place, I wouldn't have thought so. Well, it'll be very interesting to see what does happen, and of course, I'm sure that you'll be kept up to date, either through the views or the news, one way or another. Moving on, Israel's silent alliances. This is rather intriguing, isn't it? Yeah, we were just talking about the Jewish community and Labour drifting apart. Well, believe it or not, there is some movements in lots of different directions now between Israel and Sunni Arab states, which has been dubbed a silent alliance. Now, obviously, relations with Israel and the populations of Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Kuwait, etc., are very, very hard sells politically when it comes to the populations of those Arab states that are traditionally hostile to Israel. However, in the last few months, we've seen the architect of the Israel 
Israel-Jordan Peace Treaty, appointed to a new role to oversee normalisation of relations with Israel. We have seen Egypt's foreign minister had the red carpet rolled out on a visit to Israel. There are many, many ways now that Israel is leading the way in the Middle East in terms of technology, military, intelligence, and they are imparting this information to their Arab neighbours, whether whether the Arab neighbours' societies know it or not. I was in Elat at the start of the year and I was amazed at how Israel is imparting information about prevention of, of, of the damage of the coral reefs in the Red Sea and sharing this technology with Jordan. They're working hand in hand in environmental issues. So a silent alliance that hopefully will get louder and louder as the years go on. Well, I think that's just it, is just to hear this. I'm obviously sort of quite... Uh, a keen member of the community in so much as that I do try and keep across news and politics just because of the nature of the work that we all do means that we've all got an interest in it. And I hadn't got a clue this was going on. So if I don't know it, who works in Jewish news, then what hope is there of the mainstream public who don't necessarily have an interest in Jewish news but keep getting fed this information of Israel winding up its neighbours? It does seem quite extraordinary and almost a bit unfair. Mm. It's as I said, it's all below the radar. It's it's out of the public gaze, but there is coordination. There's obviously a peace treaty with with Egypt, very cordial relations and peace with Jordan. Sunni states do not seem to have an issue currently with Israel, and, and I think a lot of that's got to do with Iran and the clear and present danger that they pose to the Sunni states. Our enemy's enemy is is our friends. As I said, it's a it's a, a good move, and hopefully these things will be drawn out more into the public, and they can start selling them to the Arab population. Well, one thing that has most definitely been in the public eye is the way that Celtic fans have been behaving in a rather peculiar and questionable way at various matches. Andrew, what is this? Yes, Phil, it revolves around their Champions League playoff tie against Hapa El Beersheba, the Israeli champions. Uh, Celtic won overall 5-4 in aggregate. However, it was in last week's first leg at Glasgow when Celtic fans were raising Palestinian flags in the stands. This then led to a UEFA investigation. Now, as a result of that, the fans were, let's say, a little bit upset, and they have since raised £110,000 for Palestinian charities. They're being investigated by UEFA because at a football match, you're not meant to have any political signs or flags, so that was obviously a no-no in the eyes of the European football's governing bodies. They obviously got upset that they were fined for this. When you say they, are you talking about the club was fined or the the fans themselves? The club have been investigated. They will be fined if found guilty. But the fans have sat back and said, well, this is wrong. You know, we can support who we want kind of thing. We can raise money for who we want. We can put up flags for who we want. And as a result of which, they've raised the money for the charities. Yeah, it's a stunt. It's a it's a fan-driven stunt because their club has been fined because they waved these provocative flags. And as a result... The fans have put their hand in their pocket and I would never discourage philanthropic fans. I think it's fantastic. But as anybody who looks at uh, how this money is spent in the Palestinian territories knows that EU money has been squandered in the last few years in the territories. And this £100,000, I imagine, will probably go the same way. So Celtic fans, we could have gone with the headline Celtic fans raise £110,000 for Hamas. But in fact, we went with Celtic fans raise £110,000 after fine. And um, we should also point out as well, we don't know that exactly that they did it with the intent of funding Hamas, well, even Hamas, though it might end up in their hands. Hamas, 
Hamas are the governing body ruling the, the Gaza Strip. As a side note, it should also be mentioned that following the match, the, ch- the Celtic manager, Brendan Rodgers, actually came out and he praised Israel for being a wonderful country, the hospitality. He, re- he really went to town saying what a wonderful country it was and how grateful he was to all the players, the clubs. They really enjoyed themselves. What I hope, I don't know, Andrew, do you know how many Celtic fans actually went to Israel for the match? I think 4,000. 4,000? I think... God, that's more than a home gate at QPR. What I hope is just some of those 4,000 when they landed at Ben Gurion and they actually opened their eyes and looked around at this vibrant, exciting democracy around them in the Middle East. Perhaps when you know they were putting on their suit belts on the flight back to Glasgow, they'll have had a second thought and they'll have realised the nonsense that perhaps they've been led to believe over the last few years and and however long it's taken them to bring these flags into the into the ground. And next time, perhaps with the knowledge of the country in the front of their mind, they may be won't be so ridiculous in future. You need to see Israel to understand it. Although as a second side note, this is not the first time they've actually had Palestinian flags at a Champions League match. They do have history for this. They've been fined over the years numerous times by UEFA. So it is a problem with the Celtic supporters. Well, I'm sure that we will see what happens as and when the governing bodies make up their mind whether or not people do need to be fined or not. Now, something that fills me with dread, taking me back to school days, as always, whenever at this time of year we hear the words, the letters, the infamous letters, GCSEs. However, the community shouldn't fear of that because I think we've had a rather a good result, have we not? Phil, Andrew, we need to lay our cards on the desk right now oh, and no, no. own up. How did we all do in our GCSEs? Let's just say I would never have made our high flyers list in this week's paper. Come on, I didn't spit get, it out, Sherwood. What get, did you get? I didn't get an A. I didn't get any A stars. Right, I got how many highest, A to Cs? I think maybe five. Uh, push, if I remember that. It was a long time ago as okay, well. That's five. Five is yeah. fine. And regressively, we're running very short on time. So how about the story? <laughs> and I did the last year of O-Levels in 1987, <laughs> so it doesn't qualify <laughs> me either. <laughs> All so right. we have done quite well, though, yes. in the community. We have, we have. We've bucked the trend. GCSEs are down for the first time in 10 years overall, but we we've, we've still haven't got the results for most of our schools as we sit here recording the show. Emmanuel have recorded 97% A to Cs, which is fantastic. King Solomon, 75%, which is a new record. So again, fantastic, a real tribute to our teachers. We celebrate our teachers in our Jewish School Awards every year, and this is the result of their work. A big muzzle tov to them all. Mm. Indeed, from all of us. That's unfortunately where we have to leave it, though, for the paper review for this week. So thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, as you've just been hearing, the Labour Party are once again at the forefront of the community's mind. And this time, it's because in just under a month, we will learn whether Jeremy Corbyn can retain his leadership or if Owen Smith will be announced as the new leader. In an official letter from the Board of Deputies, both Mr Corbyn and Mr Smith were questioned on a range of issues that pertain to British jury. I've been speaking to Marie van der Zyl, one of the vice presidents of the board, to find out more about the letters and the responses they got. I started by asking her to tell us exactly what were both candidates asked. As you might have seen in the Jewish press, Gillian Merrin, the board of deputies at chief executive, has written to both candidates. The letters have been published on the website. What we wanted to know in particular was confirmation from both Jeremy Corbyn and Owen Smith, if elected, that they would abide by the board's 10 commitments. This is something that we felt was very useful before the general election in 2015. We've published 
the commitments that we would like both parties to to abide by. So a letter was written to both of them and we had very speedy responses back from both. Slightly different responses in different areas and no doubt you might ask me a little more about that. That's exactly (laughs) what I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you about the responses in just a moment but I think first we need to just remind ourselves for those who perhaps weren't sitting up and paying attention back in 2015 when the commitments were launched just a little bit about what those commitments are and what is it that you expect the government of this country or the opposition, whoever it is, whoever is in the Commons as an MP, what you expect them as the Board of Deputies to honour. We expect to have in this country our religious freedoms and practices. We expect those to be preserved. We expect them to be respected. In relation to Israel, we understand and expect the government to want to have a two-state solution. And we also have asked commitment for there not to be boycotts of Israel or Israeli institutions or academic boycotts or boycotts of goods. So In broad terms, it's preservation of our rights and respect. Well, of course, respect is something that has absolutely cropped up in the news recently. One can't escape the Jewish press. It certainly feels like since the whole of this year, frankly, where we've seen one scandal or another hit the Labour Party. So, of course, whatever the outcome of this result will be in terms of the leadership contest, it's going to prove absolutely crucial, I would have thought, to the community as a whole in terms of how we as a community get on with the leader of the opposition or the opposition full stop, really? Well, absolutely. At the present time, I think 20 MPs or councillors have been suspended. So I think that we do expect the Labour Party to get to grips with that following the Chakrabarti report. We need to see see action. Both leaders, though, have in some way pledged that they will do something to tackle it. And fair enough, there there may be accusations of a certain, shall we say, lacklustre tendency. Mm. But all the same, there is still the pledge there, I think, from both sides. Is that fair to say that they are prepared to try and tackle this head on? And I know that although the board isn't allowed to offer the opinion of who they believe would make the best leader for the community, I'm sure everyone listening will have their own minds made up on that front. Is there anything that you could sort of say that you've heard, the board has heard perhaps that worries you in terms of, say, that the, the some of the phrases that they've come out with? For example, Owen Smith has said that he would like to be in talks with ISIS. And of course, Jeremy Corbyn has been heard saying that he sees Hamas as friends. So there must be some things from both candidates that worry the board. Well, you, you've you've put to me quite a few distinct and different issues in relation to Jeremy Corbyn. He has accepted, and he, in his response back to the recent letter that Gillian Merrin wrote, that there does need to be training, and he's he's very he's very keen. He said to proceed with that. Owen Smith has been stronger in one big respect. He thinks that people should be expelled from the party, whereas Jeremy Corbyn didn't go as far as that. And in the Chakrabarti report, she didn't think there should be lifelong expulsions from the party. But we're yet to see action. We're yet to see how it's going to work. But the Board of Deputies is the democratic voice of the community. It's not a political party and we will work with whoever is elected. So it has to be a matter for the Labour Party to decide who to elect. But we have had a number of concerns, which is why we've written to both parties in the leadership campaign seeking their commitment. And we haven't exactly throughout the summer or 
at any other time been quiet in tackling the Labour Party where we have at least 20 people that are still suspended. Regardless of who does become the new Labour leader, it doesn't matter if it's Jeremy Corbyn or if it's Owen Smith, the board must have an idea of what they would like to see the opposition of this country do and in a certain way they want to behave. And what would that stance be? I mean, one would assume the obvious that they they want to try and tackle whatever traces of anti-Semitism or so-called anti-Semitism might be within the party. But is there a particular a particular dependency that the board has on the opposition? We had set this out in our documents asking for the 10 commitments so that we're very clear what is expected. We don't want any anti-Semitism tolerated. We want it tackled. But our our particular requirements we, we've documented and written to them and we've also said that we don't feel that the Chakrabarti report goes far enough. It's useful in many ways but it didn't for example deal with the demonisation of Israel. So okay if the Chakrabarti report didn't go far enough what does the board want to see happen then? The board wants to see action, it wants to see the Labour Party honour its commitment both Jeremy Corbyn and Owen Smith have said that they will not accept anti-Semitism. So we want to see action. We want to see that demonstrated. Just finally, do you think that the state of British politics as it stands now, in terms of that we obviously are just post-Brexit, we are obviously also looking at an opposition that is trying to mend themselves back together again, and we've just taken on obviously a new prime minister as well. There's, there's massive change afoot with British politics. Is that a cause for concern specifically for the community? Obviously, the country has its own concerns, but as a community, do we have anything to worry about? Well, we are British Jews and part of the fabric of the country. I think we should all be concerned about the state of the political situation at the moment. It's something that is shared and Jewish people are proud to be part of the British community. So we have the same values and we want to ensure that we have a constructive dialogue we want to live in a multicultural society where we have tolerance and respect for other cultures and religions Marie van der Zyl, one of the vice presidents from the board of deputies speaking to me there about the recent letters sent to both Jeremy Corbyn and Owen Smith about what their potential tenure as leader of the opposition could mean for British Jews You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive, Adam and I will be joined by community volunteer Andy Lucas. We will be discussing Jews in the medical profession. Plus, Clive will also be talking to Dr Amir Khalil from Four Paws, the charity that recently rescued a collection of animals in Gaza from what has been described as the worst zoo in the world. But first, if you are familiar with life in London, I'm sure you'll know that the long-awaited launch of London Underground's night tube service took place earlier this month. Magician and former JFS pupil Michael G is part of a new programme on BBC Three that shows exactly how entertaining the inaugural trips on the night tube were. Entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been speaking to Michael to find out more. Michael, this is the most exciting interview I've done for a while because the studio has been transformed with things around. But I just want to ask you, before we get into the things, when did you realise you were a magician? When did I realise I was a magician? That's an interesting question. Because You're a nice North London chap. You're from Pinner. You went to JFS, isn't that right? That's correct, yeah. So 
I mean, most people then, they do the, whatever it was in old money, their O-levels, or in your day, GCSEs, and then you go on and, you you know, you get a job. Well, I did GCSEs at JFS, then I went on to do, it was an Advanced Vocational Certificate of Education Information Communication Technology. Is that magic? Which actually sounds magic. <laughs> really the fact does. that I can say it, but uh, it was in business studies. Uh-huh. And then I went on from there to do performing arts at West Hearts College. Ah, I'm feeling um, that, getting closer. And I was doing magic throughout school. So I would say any anything from age 12, I was sticking cards on the JFS ceiling, which the teachers weren't too impressed about. But of course, um, once that school came down and ended up in Kingsbury, isn't it Kingsbury? Yeah. Somewhere like that. Of course, those uh, all my playing cards would have been amongst that rubble. <laughs> so, uh, yes, which I never So were you that. performing at school? Yeah, I, I used to perform a lot at school. Any opportunity that I got, I would, you know, enjoy to perform on my friends and teachers and things like that. So your magic is mainly sort of, is it tricks or does it go into that sort of weird psycho stuff of Darren Brown? Yeah, I would like to call myself more of an illusionist. I would say I'm very similar to that of Darren Brown. I love that kind of psychological suggestion kind of thing. Bloody frightening if you're on the other end of it, though. I mean, it can be quite terrifying. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. Do you think someone's actually going in there into your head? Well, it's interesting you say that because I would actually like to try something on you just to see if if this is Is live magic something that I've done before? And the answer is no. Well, let's try this one thing. I want you, you can either do this on in your head or on a, on a calculator. Well, I better but, do it. Um, try, well, no, just do it in your head, it's fine. Okay. Uh, think of a number between 1 and 10. Right, got it. Okay, and you can do this at home, whoever's listening. So think of a number between 1 and 10. Now multiply that number by 2. Yes. And now I want you to add 8 to that number. Yeah. Okay, Hang now... Hang on, uh, 8, yes. Yeah, add 8. And now you want to divide the answer by 2. Yeah. And subtract your original number. Yeah. Okay, so you should now be left with a number between 1 and 26. Don't tell me what that number is, but have you got a number there? Yeah. Okay, now I want you to put that number and match it to a corresponding letter. So from the alphabet. So if 1 is A, 2 is B, 3 Uh is C. Okay, so get a letter in mind. Okay, now take that letter and think of any country that begins with that letter. And again, don't don't tell me what you're thinking. Okay, so I'll just wait for everyone at home to have done that. Oh, yes, I'm so quick. That's the thing. And now I want you to um, take the letter that comes next in the alphabet. For example, if you had the letter B, you would now use the letter C. And think of an animal that begins with that letter. Done it. Okay, now think about the colour of that animal. Hmm. Okay, so you're now thinking of a country, an animal and a colour, is that correct? Correct. Okay, just concentrate on those three things for me. Concentrating. Okay, wait a second. Uh, Hold on, something's wrong. Um... There are no grey elephants in Denmark. Oh, my goodness. Now, you can't see my notes, but I'm going to actually show Phil because I wrote it down. Well done. I actually did it. Oh, it looks like Phil was also <laughs> It looks thinking, like Phil's also. Because the other this side, what so crazy. listeners can't see is that there is a screen, a glass screen, and Phil's listening. Excellent. And Phil is loving this right He is. Now. <laughs> He's actually laughing more than me. Thank you for that. That's That's right. Right. Let's just try one more thing. I want you to think of... Any song in your mind, okay? Right. Now, it's something that I've been trying to transmit to you ever since you arrived late today. Oh, I was five <laughs> minutes. Give me a break. Okay, so um, ever since you've come in, I don't know if I've been, uh, if it's been obvious, but I've been trying to subliminally suggest certain words to you, and I want to know if this has worked. 
before we started, I actually asked Phil for his laptop, which is sitting in front of us now. It's just sitting. You know that I've made a prediction on here, and you haven't seen it. Is that yes, correct? Yes, that is correct. And okay. I can see the. There now, is what a I computer. want you to do right now is think of a song in your mind. Okay, mm-hmm. any song. Mm-hmm. I'm okay. thinking. Have you got that song in your I've mind? Got okay, that song. fix it in your mind. So you've been nowhere near the laptop. I have been nowhere near the laptop. Okay, so for the first time, I want you to reach over, open that laptop, and I'm tell reaching, me if that opening is the, the laptop. song that you are thinking of. Oh my goodness me! Oh my goodness me! That's 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 the song. No, that was the that was is the, that the actually singer. The one you were th- is, the, is it the exact song? <gasps> oh my goodness! I'm actually about to have a heart attack on air as well. I mean, this is something... Can we just reveal to everyone the song? The song... I hate it as well. Thriller, Michael Jackson. I have no idea why it came into my head. What made you think of that? I don't know, because I hate it. That's madness. Wow. Okay, That's this so is really weird. freaky. Uh, okay, I'm and now Phil, actually you about have to. Laptop back <laughs> okay, off. this is the weirdest interview because I'm now actually at a loss for words. Well, let's let's continue. Well, where let's we continue left as if we as if that hadn't happened. I'm going to try and centre myself. I need to be a bit mindful here. Okay, so how the hell did you do that? <laughs> well, I like to answer to that very well, very well indeed. It's a cheeky answer, really. It is because you didn't answer it. I didn't. No, I, didn't. I can't possibly. You can't tell possibly. You. Do you find that some people sort of start googling, like the second they leave the auditorium, they start looking. How did you get the fact that you know? I went to see your oppo, Darren Brown, in um, on stage, yep. and some of his stuff was truly freaky. As was the audience, actually, I have to be honest. But you know, and I did feel this need to know how you do it. Otherwise, you feel that your mind is this open book, Pompey, mm, which people definitely. like you can tread. I have had, from what you said before, I've actually had people that have started Googling how I do tricks while I'm actually performing to them, just to see okay, if they no, can. Okay, no, I don't quite doing that. That's a bit... <laughs> but, um, yeah, that, that's annoying. No, Darren Brown, do you remember which show you went to, which which last show? Something, something, This Way Comes. Oh, that's one of the... The early ones. The very early ones. Yeah, yeah. that was a fantastic it show. It was very good. Very good. Really... The audiences started becoming very rowdy after that. So you're about to be on BBC Three. Tell us about that. Okay, so... It was actually the BBC Three that approached me and they said, you know, we'd like to... We're doing this new show called Night Tube and it's going to be launched on BBC Three and it's all about the launch of the Night Tube on the underground. So they wanted to get a magician on board to see what they could offer. And I said, I gave them some ideas and I say, look, I often actually perform magic on the underground and so I fit into, obviously, what they wanted a show. And she was saying to me, what sort of things do you normally do on the underground? So... And I'm going to tell you now, I, I regularly perform on the underground if I'm travelling to a job or if I'm travelling back from a job. I always find that because it's so dead on the underground, no one ever <laughs> talks to anyone. And I feel as though people just need to be, you know, have a bit of live entertainment and it just needs to liven up on the underground. So I thought, well, there was once I just thought, you know, I'm going to swallow a balloon or I'm going to do a card trick or, or do anything like that. And I suddenly getting, uh, you know, I, I had a huge amount of attention from it. And then I um, I started handing out my business card. I've had a huge amount of jobs that have spun from having done free magic on the underground. I'm just u- utilising that travel time. So if I'm travelling to a job or travelling back from a job, I normally end up with another job off and the this back is, of it. So this is the programme is about your nighttime travels. So the, the night tube itself is that this show that's coming out is all different people are on the show. I'm not sure how many exactly but i will be featured on there doing magic for the people on the underground which was the first few trains of that evening going out 
Great. Well, good luck with it. And when? how do we get to see it? It's on BBC Three Online and it's going to be on Sunday, but it's down for four o'clock onwards at the moment. So look out for it. I'm BBC Three, to have your mind Sunday, blown. four o'clock. Sunday, four o'clock, we will. Thank you. Thank you very much. Magician Michael G talking to entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton there about performing magic to some of the initial users of London Underground's Night Tube service. I love a bit of magic. And if you would like to watch Michael, then you can catch him when he's on BBC Three online on the 28th of August from 4pm. But of course, being BBC Three and being online, you can catch it anytime for 30 days after it transmits. And for more information about Michael, you can always go to his website, which is tvmagician.com. tvmagician, all one word, dot com. Coming up in just a moment will be this week's Schmooze. Just a reminder that we now live stream the Schmooze every Thursday evening from 7pm British Summertime on our Facebook page. Now that means that you can join in the discussion as it happens. It's just one of a number of ways you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. Now, when we think of the conflicts in the Middle East, it's very easy to think of the human lives it costs on both sides of the argument. Rarely, though, do we think about the animals caught in the middle of it. Well, the organisation Four Paws have done just that. They have been on a mission to rescue a collection of animals from a zoo in the Gaza Strip, dubbed the worst zoo in the world. Clive Roslin has been speaking to Dr Amir Khalil from Four Paws to find out more about the situations the animals were rescued from. Now, Clive did speak to Dr Khalil over a rather dodgy Skype link, so we can only apologise for any distraction that you hear in the background. But Dr Khalil was obviously out and about doing great work, as he always does. So we do apologise in advance for any disruptions you hear in the quality of the following audio. However, he started by asking Dr Khalil, how did they first get to hear about the situation? In fact, the first mission for both done in Gaza was immediately after the war. And it was the first rescue mission was the three lions at El Bissan Zoo, north of Gaza. Uh, one of the last missions, we rescued two lions cup at, uh, in the refugee camp in, uh, in Rafah, where a family bought two lions cup. Lions grow up and start to be a problem for the children at the street. And we rescue this lion's cup. Regarding Khan Yunis Zoo, our first experience with the zoo was April last year, where we get the information that the family or the owner of this Khan Yunis Zoo mummified his animal, or the dead animal he lost uh, after the war, which was very strange and a horrific picture to be in a zoo where there is mummified animal and the live animal. And this was very strange and frustrating also because it was not the optimum picture to show children. It was not kind from humanity point of view at all to have such ideas. So what, how did you get about getting the animals out of, out of the zoo and into, into Jordan? As you know, you know Gaza. Gaza Strip is very small territory. It is 360 kilometer, a high populated area 
or strip, there is no too much opportunity to have really a species appropriate place for these animals which we have to rescue. Jordan have, I will say, the infrastructure and four poles have also in cooperation in Jordan with Princess Alia Foundation, El Mawa Sanctuary, where we were able in the last year to rescue some animals. We uh, developed this place and I think currently it's impossible to have a proper place in Gaza for animal or to keep wild animals. But where did you keep them while you were getting this all organized? Because they weren't being fed properly, that was it, wasn't it? Yes, in fact, we were caring for Khan Yunis Zoo in the last months. First time in April last year, we offer uh, food and medicine and water for two months. But after this period, still was no visitor come to the zoo. The owner was not able to pay the salary, so there is no more staff working at the zoo. At the end of 2015, it was very cold winter. Again, more animal dies. So we get again an emergency call from the owner of the zoo for both a step once more in February this year to feed the animal. We were also on spot. We offer more food for the animal. But apparently food is not enough. Animal need medicine, which is not available. Animal need treatment, and there is no really qualified veterinary doctors there. So it was no other solution. Animal is dying on a regular basis. From February this year was 55 animals at the zoo. And how many now, of those 55 were you able to save? 15 animals. I mean... Till before yesterday, with 15 animals were still alive. But before, in February this year, was 55 animals exist. And before, it was over 200 animals alive oh at the zoo. So it is bad condition. The owner realized he is not able to take care of these animals. And the only solution was really we have to find a home for this animal outside the zoo. Did you find it difficult to find them a home or did you manage it quite, quite easily? The home in Jordan. For both have, yes. For both had a solution from the beginning, but it's far away. I mean, we have a home for big cats, but it's in South Africa. We speak about thousands of kilometers away from Gaza. We have a place in Jordan, but it's also still far away. Yes. To move the animal, you need a lot of logistic and coordination and political decision to allow it that we do such a mission. So how did you manage to get to the situation where you could move the animals? Because it, it was, as you say, it was so very difficult. It was surprising for me and the team of four poles to see that animal can connect people. When it came to the animal welfare and to rescue animal, all the four countries was involved in this mission said, yes, we will help, we will support. Let us know what you need, how we can support you. And this was a big motivation for the team of four posts to go ahead with the logistic and with the plan. We get huge support from Israel, huge support even from Gaza Strip Authority. We get huge support from Jordanian side and we get huge support from South African side. And, and this motivates all the team. It was many difficulties, yes. But at the end, we say mission completed. All 15 animals safe, home, new home, and they are retired from such type of business to be in a bad zoo. But the cost must have been enormous for both you and the animals. I mean, financially and also for the well-being of the animals. You are right. You are right. It cost many, many thousands of euro. 
but I believe the value of such mission, it is a lesson at first for me and for the team of Four Pose that we cannot evaluate the creature and the life, which is a gift, with how much money this is value. Now we the, save 15 animals. And the animal that went to South Africa, what animal was that? Was it a, a lion, am I right in thinking? No, it was a tiger. A tiger? The tiger, his name is Laziz. Yes. Yes. It's a Bengal tiger, nine years old, male, and it's wonderful creature from all the world. There is nearly in the wild 120 animals in life. And this is the last tiger in Gaza. The tiger lost a mate during, uh, after the war, the last war, was mummified. So you can imagine a tiger living in about 15 square meter tiny enclosure. Maybe this tiger never touched a grass in his life before. In a hot climate, there is no enrichment. And this is his life. And his mate was mummified beside him before. So I don't believe this is a good image for education or awareness or for the animal. So we see it from the perspective of the animal himself. So now this tiger arrived today to South Africa. His home is 10,000 square meter. What a difference. With a swimming possibility. It is Lion's Rock Sanctuary. It is a sanctuary belong to Four Paws International in South Africa, where we have 18 tiger rescued also, over 80 big cats also there. 1,250 hectare. As I mentioned, it's like 2,500 football stadium beside each other. So it's really a huge place, very dedicated team there. And we are very glad to be able to rescue Laziz and Laziz to be a new member at Lions Rock Sanctuary. So we are very glad for this. Dr. Amir Kalal, I think what you've done is absolutely marvelous. And thank you very much indeed. And my congratulations to you. I thank you, but I want to say I done only maybe 5% or 4%. The team of four posts done the 95% of the shop. My role was the smallest one. So I want to say it is the team of four posts who done this. Dr. Amir Khalil from the global animal charity Four Paws talking to me there about a recent rescue mission to save a collection of animals from a zoo in Gaza. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Moves, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the program so far. And joining Adam Bradley, Phil, Dave and me today is community volunteer Andy Lucas. And the subject today is based on a story we heard earlier on in the news with Viv. Scientists in Germany and Israel have made a significant breakthrough in ways to prevent melanoma, the most deadly form of skin cancer. Israel has been known, certainly amongst the community, for its incredible work when it comes to cancer research, and for centuries, Jews have been prevalent within the medical field. The question is, why? Andy, we should start with you as a phlebotomist yourself. Why did you get into the medical profession and why do you think so many Jews do? I actually don't know. I think it was something that I wanted to do when I was very young. I always wanted to be a nurse, but that never happened for various reasons. I think my mother also was very, very interested in medical things. It was always an open discussion or open conversation whenever we were talking about anything medical. We always used to watch things like Your Life in Their Hands and that type of stuff. And a lot of my family, funnily enough, are involved in medicine. 
consultants in America, over here, and you know, all over the world, you know, so I, I, it's very much, and apparently, according to one of my cousins, going back way, way back into sort of the 16th, 17th century, one of my cousins, one of my ancestors owned a clinic. It's come it's all come the way the through. Yeah, yes. it's come through. It's oh, I wish it had come down the generations in my family. I think the last doctor we had in my family was my great uncle. He died before I was even born. So, I mean, it's uh, absolutely not come through the generations in my well, family. Well, I, I think the last doctor in my family was Maimonides. So. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it funny, though, how some way or another it appears to be in the genes? I mean, as you've so beautifully proven, Andy, that for some reason, genetically speaking, we just seem to be all was drawn to the medical profession. Well, I remember from, from many, many, many years ago, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, who was a rabbi and whom I absolutely adored, saying to me two things. He said, my father became a surgeon. And my grandfather said to me, he's become a surgeon because so many Jews are brilliant in medicine. And there are two things that Jews are good at, he said, music and medicine. And a few weeks ago on this program, we talked about all the, all the Jewish music there was. And it is true, medicine and music both begin with M, and they seem to be all Jewish. Do you not think so? I, I, I do. I, th- I think a lot of the reason why there are so many Jewish doctors are because there are so many sick Jews, really. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's, okay. it's, like, it's like the old joke that... You were that, talking that, about physically yeah, sick and physically not mentally. Sick. Yeah, yeah, I should, should point that out. But I think it's a case of like the old Jewish joke that the old Jewish man went to the doctor who's having some trouble and the doctor said, look, Mr. Cohen, you've got hypochondria. To which he said, oh, not that as well. <laughs> but I heard that one in my bed. Yeah. I mean, him in my bed when I was a baby in my bed. But I think that there is actually some... <laughs> I don't know how to answer that at first. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> There, there is actually sort of some truth behind that in the sense that we've been a nation of wanderers. We've been a nation who have never been able to stay in one place. We've been persecuted. We've been oppressed. We've had people chasing after us. We've had to look after ourselves. Yes. We've had to diagnose ourselves when people were sick when we're traveling, when we're going, you know, we've had to look after ourselves. There would be no one else there for us. But do you think it's also a matter that the Jewish people as a nation, I know it's probably over the top, but we are a caring, a caring peoples. And because we're so caring, it follows that we go into some sort of caring profession. Um, medicine is a very caring profession. Or is know. it, sorry to do this, I'm, I'm, not, I'm being a bit facetious, I suppose, but is it perhaps because, maybe not so much today, but in the olden days, the thing was... If my son becomes a doctor, he'll be doing very well for himself. I'm so pleased you said that because that's exactly what's going through my mind as well. I wonder how much a part of keeping up with the Goldsteins plays a part in all of this. Mm. Because there is this element of expectation from children and from children's children and things like that. It means so much to us as a people that do we maybe have such high standards in the first place and therefore that's why we have to go into medicine, that's why we have to become lawyers, that's why we have to become accountants, is because it's all different professions that require a certain level of skill and it's one that, let's be honest, you have to be slightly clever to be able to do, which is probably why I work on the radio, and that is why also that we expect that from our families. 
Well, in fact, I had it in my own family because my father was a surgeon and from about the age of two or three, I remember being told by my father, when you grow up, you're going to be a doctor or a surgeon. And he said the same thing to my brother. My brother wanted to be a lawyer, but my brother became a very successful surgeon and made it to my sister as well. And she said, no, I'm going to be a teacher. He was furious. He said, you have to be a doctor. So, yes, exactly the point I was making, yes. that level of expectation. Yeah. I, I'm kind of more t- towards Andy's point of view, though. I think it's got a lot to do originally with the fact that we are brought up to be caring. We are taught over three and a half thousand years now have been told to fix the world ticking along i think we were talking about this before phil about fixing about healing i mean yeah but i wasn't talking about fixing people i was talking about fixing broken equipment before i think that's very different i think that's very different (laughs) yeah but i think andy i think there's truth in that 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 we're brought up to care that's part of our reason to be on this planet is to make things better And where better to start than human beings? That's right. But also, we need money to be able to live and to fight our corner. And medicine and accountancy and anything like that, any of the professions are professions that you make money or you can make money. And by making money, you can therefore get on with life and move on up in the world and also help people that way. But, but to be said, being, I'm being really serious about this now, there are not that many accountants, solicitors, all the other professions that one can think of who are Jewish as much as are the medical profession and the musical profession. You mean pro rata, do you mean? Pro rata, I mean, yes. Well, maybe I that's the know. case, but I, I wouldn't know without exact statistics in front of me, and I, I don't believe that to be the case. All I know is that there are an abundance of... Jews who work within the media, of course, that's where my particular field is. Some people need reassuring on that front, but that is what I work in. And with that in mind, of course, I do stumble across an extraordinary number of members of the community who work in media. I'm sure it was the same with you, Andy, when you worked full time in medical profession. You probably came across an awful lot of Jews in the profession. So I think that we know our own worlds, don't we? So it just it goes to show we just have common interests. isn't It's interesting. I mean, the thing that we mentioned that we've heard about in the program earlier today, the story about scientists in Germany and Israel have made a significant breakthrough in ways to prevent melanoma. I mean, that sort of thing happens a great deal from Jews, doesn't it? That sort of discovery. Well, Israel are very hot on cancer cures, aren't they? They've they've got an awful lot going into cancer research and always have done, which is, I suppose, getting on to a slightly different topic, which always amuses me when people say they're going to do all they can to boycott Israel. It's just not doable because they've infiltrated the medical markets so greatly. It's just not possible to boycott the science yeah, that Israel has contributed. Quite right. And I th- also think Israel's a law unto itself in the sense that it's an ancient culture. The Jews are an ancient <laughs> religion. So we've got years and years of history, of experience, of learning, of Torah. So we know about how to learn. But we've also, Israel is one of the ultimate countries of pioneers. Like America is a country full of pioneers. Israel is yeah. the same. It's a, it's such a young country. It's such a vibrant, developing part of the world that I think that's why a lot of sort of the technological progression that we see in Israel is due to that. It's this, it's this balance of complete modernity and and pioneer attitude with this ancient tradition of deep learning and deep caring. And I, I think that makes up quite a dynamic, really. 
So does that make you more religious? Or is it because of the religion, perhaps? I, I, I don't know if it makes it more religious. It certainly gives you more of a sense of pride, which ultimately could lead to a certain level of religiosity. But I don't you, think... you, made, you made a funny face when I asked that question of, of Adam. Why did you? Because I don't think that religion as such has got anything to do with the pride. Well, right. that Perhaps I shouldn't have used the word religion, but the yeah, teaching. But I beg to Jew, differ. Jewish we said teaching. just now, tick on alarm to make the world yeah, a better place. Yeah, so actually, right. it's greatly to do with the religion, isn't it, really? I personally think yeah, but the it, majority it, it, of our success is based on the Torah and learning. Yes, it is based on the Torah, but it wouldn't necessarily make me more religious, if you like. You know, because I just enjoy my religion, but I, I wouldn't go ultra-Orthodox or whatever because... No, no, I wasn't suggesting that. I was just saying that the teachings are so fundamental. Yeah, yeah, basically, I think you're right. The, the teachings have come through. And the Torah, t- you know, Torah is, tells you how to heal people. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, it, it's, yeah. it tells you how to cure leprosy, for crying out loud. Well, you know, exactly. so... You know, we've been doing this for many, many years, and I I think it's part and parcel of who we are. I think I've said this before on this programme, but in fact, I find one of the most remarkable things about Judaism is that the Ten Commandments were written at the time, whether you believe God gave them to Moses or just were written by Moses, other people, are still, in a day's when there was more or less savagery in the world, the Ten Commandments are still the most important aspect of life today. Yeah. And that's what I was trying. That's what I was referring to. Okay. You know, when it comes though to Jewish doctors, I don't know about you, but I personally feel, and this sounds—I don't mean this to sound so horrible. So please do forgive me if someone's listening who's not Jewish. They don't want you to take offence to this. But do you find there is almost something a bit more comforting about going to see a Jewish doctor? Because I find that in some weird way, it's as if I'm reassured that because they're Jewish, therefore I'm in good hands which sounds terrible because i know all doctors have to pass certain qualifications to become doctors but then of course on the other hand i worry that of course the grapevine is so vicious that does that mean that even under oath does that mean that other people are going to get to hear of why i've gone to the doctor uh no no oh, well that was easy enough that, to answer wasn't it really yeah, there you go absolutely. that was a sh- that was a very quick conversation <laughs> absolutely no but i i do think the fact that you perhaps feel com- more comfortable with the jewish doctor is the fact that they've probably been brought up to the same sort of effects that you've been brought up and they they know if you say something oh i feel schwach or i feel so and so they'll understand <laughs> what you're saying um or at least you hope they will oh yeah well you hope they will but and of I course think, to anyone who doesn't speak yiddish yeah exactly. what would they what would you say what would you say instead of schwach i feel dreadful yeah so it i guess i would understand what you mean that to be able to have that instant link it's almost a little reassurance that they will be able to help with see, exactly I, I, what the problem I, I don't is. feel that at all uh, now, I could see that in the Haredi community, I think it's essential. You, you need to have a... Because of the laws of, of sneers, which is modesty and touching and all... You know, I think that that's essential. But from my point of view, I'm modern orthodox, my favourite doctor at our practice is, is an Indian doctor. Why? Because he's really good. Because he's he gives you that type... It's nothing to do with his background or... And I've had Jewish doctors in the past. Okay, my dentist, funnily enough, is is Jewish, and he is brutal. <laughs> he's a wonderful dentist. I've been with him nearly twenty years, but he's he's brutal. I see your point with the cultural side of things, but I think most people 
when it comes to health, it's just what's best for you at that point, whoever it is. Really. I once knew a wonderful Jewish woman doctor whose her name was Dr. Sugar, and she was a bit of sugar. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, sugar. Um, Sounds like something out of Charlie um, and the Chocolate Factory. How many, how many other, how many great doctors in the past have discovered things like this thing they've just discovered in Israel about melanoma? Are there many, many Jewish doctors who are in history as finding great discoveries in medicine? Do you know? Anything? I wouldn't know off the top of my head, but I'd be very surprised if there weren't. But doctors in other fields as well have been very successful doctors in psychology and you know they, they of course the, there was of course the great Sigmund Freud yeah of course he was a great yeah. doctor but he's been responsible for many a slip of the tongue on my part believe me <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's quite well there we are it seems more or less the right place to end this discussion thank you all very much indeed my thanks particularly to community volunteer Andy Lucas for joining us today Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter we are at jewishviewsuk. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London Masorti Synagogue. Though I've become a dog person, I was brought up with a cat, and I remember my father telling me that the cat could never say grace after meals. This wasn't because she lacked the necessary Hebrew or any other language skills for that matter, but because my father said that the Torah declares, and it's in this week's portion, Va'achalta v'savata uverachta, you shall eat, be satisfied and bless. But the cat was incapable of ever being satisfied, so could therefore not bless. We live in a civilization which seems to be rather similar to that cat. We're taught to want, to desire, to need all kinds of things. And actually it struck me more the older I get that the art in life is being capable of being satisfied and blessing. Yes, one wants more, perhaps more time, more of a sense to deepen one's heart and one's conscience. But it's also an important art to be able to say, I'm grateful for what I have and I'm satisfied and I want to thank and bless God. I met a lady at an interfaith conference on spirituality and ageing who said she had the custom which she derived from Benedictine tradition of not going to bed before saying five things for which she was thankful. I've tried to adapt this, although I only do it, I must say, sporadically. But that line in the Torah, you shall eat and you shall be satisfied and then you shall bless really stays with me, we say it several times a day, to teach us that no, I don't need everything, and I won't have everything, and also I can have a lot, but I won't notice it if I'm actually not satisfied by it. But what's important is to be able to bless. Thank you to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg from New North London Mazorti Synagogue with our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Marie van der Zeel, Michael G, Dr. Amir Khalil. Thanks also to Andy Lucas, who is on the schmooze. And of course, you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of the Jewish views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk. And you can search for us in iTunes. 
The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.